Well, hey everyone, great to be with you today. Uh, people have been asking me how I'm feeling on the other side of our announcement that next year would be my last year in the senior pastor role here at Grace. My simple answer is that I'm feeling peaceful. <laughs> Even though it's a big decision with implications for all of us, it, it just feels right for us and, and for Grace. Your words of affirmation and support have really meant a lot to me these past couple of weeks, and I have great confidence in our staff and leadership and in this congregation. I know that we can trust the Lord with all of our futures. But I'm also excited about this next year that we get to spend together, so let's get started. If you tuned in last Sunday, you know that Pastor Ruthie gave me a hard time about asking her to preach on one of the most difficult chapters in the whole book of Revelation, which she did a great job with, by the way. But let me just say that as tough as last week's message was, it was child's play compared to this week. Today, we turn to the subject of judgment, God's response to sin and evil. And the language and images we're going to encounter today are rough. They're bizarre. Like the one we just heard, a, a garish woman riding a seven-headed beast drunk on the blood of martyred believers. They're disturbing. Like the image of a dragon trying to devour a newborn male child. Some of them are downright gruesome. Like the image of birds feasting on the flesh of vanquished enemies on a battlefield called Armageddon. How do we reconcile these harsh words and awful images with the God of love and grace we meet in the rest of Scripture? Why is all this wrath and warfare necessary? How in the world is judgment good for the world? And what does it mean for each of us personally? Well, those are the questions we're going to be wrestling with as we work our way through the middle chapters of the Revelation. Now, as we've already seen, this mysterious and challenging book of Revelation actually gets off to a pretty good start. In chapter 1, John shares a magnificent vision of the risen and exalted Christ ruling over all things, declaring himself to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of, of, of Earth's story and our own stories. In chapters 2 and 3, we consider John's pastoral letters to seven churches in which he affirms them and challenges them to, to be faithful to Christ and their mission. In chapters 4 and 5, we're given another vision of Christ, this time as the Lamb, slain for the sins of the world, worthy to open the scroll and reveal God's ultimate purpose for the world and humankind. In those same chapters, we're ushered into the throne room of heaven, where we see the people of God and all the heavenly host gathered in worship around God and the Lamb. So far, so good. But then we come to the middle chapters, chapters 6 through 19, where we encounter one vision after another of awful things happening on earth to believers and, and unbelievers alike. In chapter 6, seven seals are opened as war, famine, pestilence, and darkness fall on the peoples and places of the earth. In chapter 8, seven trumpets sound 
As fire and hail fall from the heavens, the waters of the earth turn bitter, stinging locusts descend on the landscape. In chapter 16, seven bowls are poured out. Once again, plagues, poison, and pestilence. In case you're not feeling it yet, let me read you a portion of John's description of these seven bowls. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over the plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gathered the kings together to the place they called Armageddon. So what's going on here? How are we to understand these passages and reconcile them with what we know about the goodness and mercy of God that we find in the rest of the Bible? But we have to remind ourselves again that this is apocalyptic literature. It's a kind of literature common in the ancient world that was meant to capture people's imaginations and rouse them to action. It's not history. It's not poetry. It's not even prophecy. Someone has described it as, as shock therapy, meant to jolt readers into facing reality and taking swift and appropriate action. So when we read apocalyptic literature, we have to ask some important interpretive questions. For instance, we have to ask, are these judgments literal or symbolic? Is there really a drunken woman riding a seven-headed beast and threatening God's people? Or are the woman and the beast symbols meant to represent something else, something that would have been understood by the original audience? Uh, someone has suggested that, that you have to read apocalyptic literature the way you read a political cartoon. Imagine someone finding a newspaper a thousand years from now and concluding that there was a time in our land when donkeys and elephants were at war with each other and the nation was ruled by a skinny dude in a white beard and a top hat named Uncle Sam. In the same way that we understand the donkey and the elephant represent opposing political parties, first century readers would have understood that the beast with seven heads was the Roman Empire, famous for its seven hills. And the woman drunk with the blood of martyrs stood for the emperor who was persecuting Christians. But not just the Roman Empire and the emperor named Domitian, but every empire and every ruler throughout history that opposed the people and purposes of God. So if... if if these characters and events are meant to be understood symbolically and not literally, 
We have to ask ourselves if the plagues and disasters are meant to be understood in the same way. Not as actual historical events, but as metaphors for the evil and suffering of human history. Uh, Well, secondly, we have to ask ourselves if these judgments are predictions or possibilities. In other words, is John seeing things that are actually going to happen in real time and space? Or is he seeing things that could happen, hypothetically? I think of Ebenezer Scrooge being visited by the ghost of Christmas future. Is he seeing what his future will be or what it could be if he doesn't change his ways? As long as we're talking classic Christmas movies, how about George Bailey, whose guardian angel gives him a vision of what his beloved town of Bedford Falls might look like if not for his wonderful life of goodness and kind deeds? See, the revelation was given to rouse people to action calling sinners to repent and believers to bear witness in light of this coming judgment day. So do these visions reveal what will happen in the future or what could happen in the future if people don't respond appropriately? Well, thirdly, we have to ask ourselves if these judgments are punishments or consequences. In other words, are these so-called judgments we read about things that God does to us or things that we do to ourselves. Does God start wars, or do people start wars? I don't think God prompted Vladimir Putin to rain down death and destruction on a peaceable neighbor. How about famine? Experts tell us there's enough food on Earth to feed Earth's entire population one and a half times over. People are hungry because greed and corruption and apathy keep food from reaching those who need it. How about sickness? Aren't most diseases spread by human beings? And aren't many of our physical afflictions brought on or exacerbated by ignorance, carelessness, poverty, stress, or pollution of the environment? Now, now, for sure, natural disasters like floods and earthquakes and droughts, they're not within our control. But Genesis tells us that those things weren't present before the fall. It was our rejection of God's love and care that introduced death and disorder into the world God had made. And when natural disasters do happen, their destructive impact is is often multiplied by human error and foolishness and corruption. Uh, Fourthly, we have to ask if if these judgments are universal or limited. See, on the one hand, it sounds as though these evils and disasters are impacting the whole earth and great numbers of people. And yet, when we read carefully, again and again, we're told that it's only a fraction of the earth or the population that's actually affected. A fourth of the earth, we're told. A third of the ships. A tenth of the city. Something or someone is limiting the effects of this evil, putting boundaries around it. And finally, we need to ask if these judgments are meant to be warnings or invitations. The Revelation wasn't written simply to give people a heads up about all the bad things that could happen. It was written to get people's attention so they could respond appropriately, so they could repent 
so they could turn from their foolish and rebellious ways of living and turn toward the God of heaven who loves them and, and wants good for them. In an interlude between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, John writes these words. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And people did. Three times in the midst of these tribulations, we're told that people did that. They turned to God. They gave him glory. That's the language of faith, of repentance. Again and again in this book of Revelation, we read about a great multitude of people that no one could count from every nation and people on earth gathered around the throne and praising God. So whether they're warnings or invitations or both, they're effective. Great numbers of people turn to God as a result of all of this. So all this to say, we have to read and process this material very carefully and thoughtfully. We have to listen for the big ideas and not get hung up on the distracting details. We have to understand them symbolically and not literally. We have to read them as possibilities, not predictions. We have to recognize many of them as evils we bring on ourselves, not vindictive punishments hurled down by an ill-tempered deity. And most importantly, we have to read them as invitations to respond, to believe, to give glory to the God of heaven and spread the news of his Son. And the only reason it goes on for so long, one judgment after another, is to allow more time for more people to respond to that invitation, to escape judgment and find life in God's kingdom. The book of 2 Peter reminds us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so God gives us this disturbing vision of what could be, what will be, if humanity continues in its foolish and rebellious ways, if it ignores or rejects God's offer of life and love. But at some point, even God's patience will run out, and he will bring all this evil and suffering to an end. And ultimately, that's what judgment is all about. The biblical meaning of the word judge isn't to punish. It's to decide. It's to discern, to separate. To judge is to say, this is right and that is wrong. This is good, that is evil. This must stand and this must stop. And someday, God will do that once and for all. So as we come to the end of Revelation, we find the forces of evil and the hosts of heaven gathering for a final confrontation in a place called Armageddon. 
And this is where we have to put our interpretive hats on again and read very carefully. Uh, back in the 70s, when end times prophecy was all the rage, we were taught that at, at, at the end of the age, uh, the physical armies of rogue earthly nations, like the Soviet Union, for instance, would literally gather tanks and helicopters on the plains of Megiddo in Israel for a pitched battle against the armies of God, who we assumed included righteous nations like the United States. Some Bible teachers even told us that these rogue nations were already raising tens of thousands of horses to support an armed cavalry in fulfillment of biblical prophecies of horses and riders. But as we've been learning, apocalyptic literature has to be understood symbolically. When we were in Israel recently, we actually got to see the plains of Megiddo. And as soon as I saw them, I understood what was going on with John's vision of this final confrontation. As you can see from the photo, it's a vast tract of flat land stretching for miles in every direction, bounded by hills and rivers on most every side. It was the site of many pivotal battles in Israel's history and was located at the intersection of major trade routes from east to west in the ancient world. So if you were trying to get first century people to imagine a cosmic confrontation between the forces of good and evil, the likes of which the world had never seen, <laughs> you would situate it on the largest and most historic battlefield people could possibly imagine, which would be the plains of Megiddo. But, but, but John never intended his readers to, to imagine an actual physical battle between human and heavenly armies, it was a metaphor, an illustration, a symbol of a greater spiritual conflict between good and evil, light and darkness, heaven and hell. It becomes a bit clearer when we come to chapter 19, to John's vision of a rider on a white horse. Let's pick it up at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He treads the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, at first reading, it sounds like we're about to witness a bloodbath on the plains of Megiddo. And, and it, it's hard to reconcile this image of Christ with the, the Jesus we meet in the Gospels. But when we take a closer and more thoughtful look at this image, we begin to understand what's going on. First of all, we're told that this rider is faithful, true, and just. 
So whatever he's about to do and however he does it, it will be faithful, true, and just. We're told that he's riding a white horse. White horses were what kings and generals rode into town after the battle to announce their victory and establish their rule. We're told that he's dressed in a robe, not armor. He's wearing crowns, not a helmet. In other words, he's dressed like a king, not a warrior. He bears a sword, but it's in his mouth, not his fist. And it's a sword made of words, not steel. Whatever this rider is about to do, it won't be violent. Yes, his robe is dipped in blood, but it's his own blood, shed on the cross in an act of supreme love. The armies of heaven are, are wearing robes made of fine linen, white and clean. This is an army of priests, not soldiers. They're not even armed. Suddenly we realize this rider hasn't come to wage war, but to wage peace. The sword coming from his mouth isn't meant to kill. It's meant to penetrate our human defense mechanisms. To divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, as the book of Hebrews says. To judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The words he wields aren't meant to kill his enemies. They're meant to turn them from enemies into friends. To bring them to their knees and surrender to the God of grace and love. The crazy thing about this so-called Battle of Armageddon is that it never actually takes place. There's no engagement between the armies of heaven and the armies of earth. The battle is over before it's even begun. Because the rider on the white horse has already won the victory. He, he won it when he went to the cross as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He took on himself the burden and responsibility for all the world's sin and evil, and he conquered it, he buried it, and then rose from the dead, declaring forgiveness and freedom for all who would believe. The battle's over. All that's left is to proclaim the victory and put an end to evil and suffering once and for all. And at the end of this scene, that's exactly what happens. We see the beast and the false prophet who had fomented all this rebellion and who are not human beings, by the way, thrown into the lake of fire, eliminated once and for all. And, and while we do read about the birds of the air feasting on the flesh of vanquished enemies, we have to, we have to once again remember the symbolic nature of the book. In the ancient world, victory over your enemies meant, meant killing them all. That's the way the world worked. That's how you eliminated a threat. So as disturbing as this, as this imagery is, John is simply describing total victory in terms the readers would have understood. He wants them and us to know that once these enemies are finally defeated, they are never coming back. We also have to remember the Apostle Paul reminding us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Human beings are not the enemy. Satan and the powers of darkness are the enemy. And one day, God and the Lamb will vanquish them once and for all. And if there are human beings who refuse to bow their knee to this king, who refuse to accept his life and love, they too will be vanquished, whatever that means. Because as long as greed and lust and hate and envy and pride and prejudice are loose in the world, there can never be peace and justice and life as it was meant to be experienced. See, if there's no judgment, there can be no justice. Until someone separates right from wrong and good from evil and love from hate, there will never be justice in the world. And so, so judgment, when it's properly understood, is good for the world because it means evil will be eradicated once and for all. Judgment means that everything that's wrong with this world will one day be put right. Judgment means that all the things that make us mad in this world, the trafficking of human beings, the exploitation of women and children, racial injustice, political corruption, economic inequities, warmongering, terrorism, the devaluing of human life, the destruction of our planet, all these things, they make God mad too. And one day God will say, it stops here. And when that day comes, all of heaven and earth will celebrate. We're, we're actually given a vision of that day in Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. Now, if you're hearing the Hallelujah Chorus ringing in your ears right now, you get the idea. If you remember our night of worship from a few weeks ago, singing at the top of our lungs, He is worthy, you get the idea. But if you're still not feeling it, maybe this picture will help. You've seen it before. The iconic photo snapped in Times Square on VJ Day, celebrating the end of World War II. It's the sight and the sound and the feeling of victory. The end of hostilities. A world at peace. And someday, on the other side of judgment, it will look and feel like that for all people everywhere, forever and ever and ever and ever. Judgment is good for the world because it will eradicate evil once and for all. But, but what does all this mean for us 
personally. I mean, we've seen that judgment can be good for the world, but what does it have to do with our everyday lives and with the work of the church? Well, a few things come to mind. First, judgment means we have a decision to make. Will we bow the knee and give glory to the God of heaven? Will we turn from whatever evil we are contributing to in the world? and surrender to the love and leadership of the Lamb who was slain? We don't have to. These visions suggest that even after all these warnings, all these invitations, some will still choose not to repent, not to surrender. And God allows us to make that choice. If we don't want to spend eternity with God, we don't have to. We don't know exactly what the consequences of that decision are. We'll explore that a bit next time. But the consequences of ignoring or rejecting God's invitation, those consequences seem to be dire and forever. The book of Revelation was meant to get your attention, to get you thinking about things we don't usually allow ourselves to think about, like where we'll spend eternity. The time to make that decision, Revelation urges us, is now. If you've never bowed your knee to God, if you've never said yes to Christ's offer of forgiveness and freedom, you can do that today. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate communion, remembering the life, death, and resurrection of the Lamb. You can say yes to His work by by joining us in that communion celebration. So so judgment means we have a decision to make. Secondly, judgment means we have a mission to fulfill. Uh, Pastor Ruthie reminded us of that last week. Uh, That mission is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us and for the world. The only way for great numbers of people to turn to God is for believers like you and me to fulfill our mission of making disciples of all nations. One commentator puts it this way. Nowhere in Revelation does judgment on its own lead to repentance. What appears to make all the difference is the faithful, lamb-like witness of the church. When unbelievers hear the words of truth and witness the poured-out lives of God's people, They change direction. The revelation was meant to be a call to arms for the church. Not to the arms of war, but the arms of love and service in Jesus' name. Christ has already begun to put things right in this world. One person, one family, one community at a time. And he's commissioned the church to join him in that work by doing justice and loving mercy, by calling out evil and injustice whenever we see it, and by working with him to put it right. So judgment means we have a decision to make. We have a mission to fulfill. And finally, judgment means we have a hope to hold on to, even in the face of all that's wrong with the world. I mean, let's let's face it, it it can get discouraging sometimes. Scrolling through our newsfeed, 
feeling the fear and anxiety in the culture, witnessing the declining interest in faith and church. It can feel like a losing fight. But the revelation promises that one day everything will be put right. That one day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The faith community knows more about what's wrong with the world than any other and is, at the same time, less cynical or despairing about it. We have a hope to hold on to. Now, now, we'll talk more about that coming day and that coming kingdom in a couple of weeks. But for today, in the face of all that is wrong with the world and with us, let's make or renew our decision to worship and serve the God who loves us and made us for eternal glory. Let's fulfill our mission of bearing witness to Christ and working for justice in the world. And let's hold on to a hope that will not disappoint, knowing that one day evil will be no more. Let's pray about these things. Thank you, Lord, for these powerful words and images that have opened our eyes to spiritual realities in the world around us. We confess our limited understanding of all these things. And we confess the doubt and discouragement that sometimes gets the best of us. Thank you for the assurance that you are still on the throne, that you are with us and for us in the struggle, and that one day, you will put right all that's wrong with the world and with us. Until that day, may we faithfully and boldly work for peace and justice. In Jesus' name, amen.